Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa. Buddhang damang sankhang namasami. So this is the first talk which I'm giving after my two weeks retreat but all that good energy has been shattered over the last three days. <laughs> so back to normal talk. <laughs> Some of the stuff which happens in this monastery is just unbelievable, but you live here so you can believe it. But uh, one of the important parts of uh, our meditation, one of the suttas I was looking at, during my retreat, I always like to look at a few suttas because they really ground you, you know, in the Buddha's teachings. Not only that, is that, you know, you just stand in awe or sit in awe of, you know, the, the articulate nature of the Buddha when he taught the Dharma. He taught it in such a beautiful way. And the more you understand the Dharma, the more you understand and appreciate not just the fact that the Buddha knew what he was talking about, that he could explain it in such a very profound way. Its profundity keeps on improving. And to read a sutta when you're getting some nice meditation, it really sort of stands out. And one of the suttas which you just sort of remembered from a long time ago was that sutta in the Kanda Sangyutta uh, of uh, Ananda saying when he achieved stream winning, when he found the Dhamma, uh, because it was uh, Punamantani Puta. Uh, you know, one of the great monks. He just taught him when he was a young monk that uh, just like uh, when a person looks at their reflection in a mirror, just you know what they see you know, depends upon that reflection. They take that reflection to be them. You know, the reflection in the mirror. And you can see that's what we do. When you look in the mirror, we look and see how am I going today? Am I getting grey-haired? Am I getting wrinkles? Am I getting old? You take the image in the mirror to be oneself. In the same way, he was saying that you, know, you take this idea of a self, who you think you are, the I am, you know, from the reflection of the five candors, you know, depending, fueled by these five candors. And without that, without those five candors, there's no way that you can construct a sense of me or mine or a self in the same way that without a mirror you can't see yourself, so you don't actually you know, have an idea of what you look like. So you don't actually conceive of yourself as ugly or beautiful or whatever. And that was actually the teaching which uh, Ananda kept on telling, that that's what broke him through to see the Dhamma. And every time you read that this was a teaching, that one of the, the great monks or nuns are used to become a stream winner. That's a very powerful thing for us to remember. And of course, why that is so is that uh, he's saying all these ideas of who you think you are, you know, this identity, it's based on one or other or a combination of or a part of you know, these five candors. And the whole purpose is to try and overcome that delusion thinking that somehow any one of these is myself. But of course, it's not an easy thing to do that. Millions of people have read that sutta. They've started it, they've translated it, but you know, have they penetrated to the Dhamma yet? You do need something a little bit more than just an intellectual understanding, but the intellectual understanding is the base to understand that this is what streamlining is all about is to understand that these things which we take to be a self are not a self at all. And if you do take them to be a self, it's just so much, much suffering. Just like a reflection. You would take this reflection, you know, of uh, the five candors as they appear. They really take this to be me. But it's nothing real, no more than the image in the mirror is really you. That's what happens. Sometimes we look into the mirror and we say, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's got the best rupa, vedana, sanya, sankara, vidyada of them all? Me! 
That's pride and conceit. But you can see that where that comes from. You know, we always want to be the best. We always want to be achieve things. We want to get somewhere. And I've been plugging away at this teaching meditation that if that you take any of these things to be you, any of these things to be part of you, it's like the simile of the t- of the uh, the movie screen. As long as you identify with you know, that image on the screen, that's just like the young person identifying with the image they see in the mirror. That's me. This young girl, this young man, this old woman, this sick sick man. If you take that to be you, the image you see in the mirror, you know, Asian, Caucasian, tall, short, well, that's not you. But if you take it to be you, it's like taking that image on the, the movie screen to be you. That's where you get emotionally entangled. That's where you get afraid. Just like when animata comes up in your meditation. You only get afraid when you say, that's me, that's part of me, that's an important aspect of my identity. It's my achievement, it's my nimitta. In the same way, when you see just this beautiful girl, if you're a guy coming on the screen, then you get excited. Only if you realize, if you think that that is a real thing, you think it's just light on the screen, that's all it is. It's not a real woman. Now, if you see the monster, because you get scared of the nimitus, they're too powerful. See the great monster on the screen come out. It's not a monster, it's only just light, that's all. It's just an illusion. When we take it to be us, ours, something to do with me, that's why people cry when they see movies. That's why they jump, that's why they laugh when they see movies. They get involved in it. In the same way we get involved with these five candors, which is why we can know whether we've seen non-self or not, by just the way we regard our body and its sicknesses. Now, do you regard this as I am sick, or do you regard this as just sickness, that's all? Just like you see a person on a movie getting sick and dying. Does that really affect you? So if you really know that this is like the movie simile, you get sick, it's just sickness, that's all. You get Vedana, these are just images on a screen. It's not my Vedana, it's not my pain, not my happiness, not my bliss, not my uh, boredom. That's boredom, I suppose, really comes under sanya. But when you take these things as yours, when you own them, because of that reflection, you know, which is this Vedana, you know, it's not a real thing. It's like looking at a image, uh, an image in a mirror, or a movie on a screen. It's not real. It's uh, taking it for what it's not. It's just cause and effect. You know, the electricity. I don't know how the screens work on modern TVs. Or in the plasma screens, I used to know just how the old cathode, cathode ray type uh, screens used to work on the old TVs. But you can understand what's happening, just electrons you know, hitting this plasma, that's what it was. You know, and it's just light coming up, but it's not real, it's not a real image. Therefore you don't get excited, you don't get upset, you don't get afraid. So what happens is we remember that. Remember that whether it's sanya, sankaras, the will, especially the thoughts, these aren't us. But because we take them to be us, that's where we get the I am from and that's where we get the problems from. And the consciousness, because that we can be aware of conscious experience, because that's the, the image presented to us, we take that to be my consciousness. I am aware, I am alive, I am here. So it's based on all of that that we get this, this I am concept. And that is the problem. And so how do we overcome that? We've got to be able to you know, look at the, the movie and the scariest thing happens. And we just, it's just a movie, that's all, nothing to do with me. We've got to be able to actually to experience some of these deep pains. It's just pain, that's all, it's nothing to do with me. 
the greatest of pleasures. It's not pleasure, that's all. We don't really get into it. And thoughts and intentions, we realize whatever intention comes up into our mind, it's not mine. It's just cause and effect. It comes from conditioning, that's all. All these things which I choose to do, I don't choose to do them. It doesn't come from me. It's just the conditioning. Sometimes we call it habits, that's all. But it's just conditioning. It's not me. It's not a problem. To be able to actually to do that, there is the stuff of being a stream winner, of actually seeing that from time to time and understanding that this is the truth of things. See, even consciousness, this thing which is aware, the thing which can hear me right now, which can feel, which can know the thoughts going on in the mind. You know, do you really get involved in that? Is it important <coughs> to you? Or is it just as important as a, as a movie on the, or a, a documentary on the TV? You can just turn it off whenever you want. That's one of the ways we can know that we've understood that these things have nothing to do with us. That we can turn them off. They can stop, they can fade away. That's why the meditation which we do is the way of understanding these things, confronting them, seeing them. So it's not just listening to a teaching, it's understanding it through one's own experience. And the experience of seeing these things aren't yours. It's the same as the experience of being able to watch a movie and have total sort of equanimity, not get excited, not get depressed, not get afraid. It's just a moving, to be able just to know that and keep that. And of course, if that happens, the movie gets so boring because we're not involved in it, it just turns off. It needs our attention to keep it going, our interest. In the same way, the things which happen in your mind it needs our interest, our intention. We've got to involve and invest some energy into whatever we're experiencing for it to continue. When we take away that investment of energy and interest, we take away its value, then these things don't matter anymore and they fade away. And that's what happens in your meditation. Yeah, you sit down, you may have been sitting meditation for a long time, you ache, you're tired. It doesn't matter, it's just body's problem, nothing to do with me. You don't give value to your body. It's not important. It's just the body doing its thing, that's all. Nothing to do with me. So that means you can sit when you're tired, you can sit when you're sick. You can do anything, because it's just the body doing its stuff, that's all. And you know you're doing this, and letting it go, and taking the value away from it, when the body just settles down. If you give value to your sicknesses, you'll find they will get worse. You're feeding them in the same way that you feed the anger-eating demon. Get out of here, you don't belong. And this is actually what makes these sicknesses in the body get worse and worse and worse. Trying to force them out and trying to be the tough guy or the tough nun Again, it's just again feeding it again. Trying to force that demon out of the palace again causes it to get bigger and worse. Ignoring it is one of the best ways. When you ignore the demon, geez, it's a waste of time coming to this palace. No one even gets scared of me. And it just goes away by itself. You're no fun anymore. I always say that's the best way to deal with ghosts. And they come and up in front of you and they try and scare you. And you just, okay, you can do whatever you like. You know, just, you can hang out here if you want, but I'm not paying any attention to you whatsoever. They go usually to the monk next door. You're no fun anymore. A lot of times, when we take away the value from these things, we take away their importance. You know, they're just phenomena, that's all. They're not important anymore. And then you find that they settle down and disappear. The settling down, the upasama of these things, the samatha of them, those are the two words which mean to settle the thing down so it's not a problem anymore. And when it's not a problem anymore, when there's no business to be done, it vanishes. You don't even think about it anymore. 
Just like when you do any of your duties, you know, you may be on the kitchen roster, you may be just on the cleaning the toilets roster. When it's all done, it's finished. You don't keep thinking about that for the rest of the day or go back and clean it up twice a day instead of just once every few days, whatever you have to do. It's done, so it disappears, it vanishes. It falls off your radar. So it's just not there anymore. And that's a beautiful thing. When you take away the value from things, they vanish, they disappear. That's the way that you know that you've understood these things. So when it comes to the body, you know that you've understood it. You know you've understood that this body has nothing to do with me. You've seen this is this body, if you keep looking on, on it, it creates the sense of self. Just like the person looking at their image in the mirror, it creates her identity. If you don't do that, the identity disappears. You don't know who you are. In the same way, you don't really think yourself as a body anymore. You take away its importance, its value. It's not me, nothing to do with me. It's not me, mine or a self. Then you can sit down very comfortably for many hours. For those of you who haven't managed to sit for long periods of time anymore, it's nothing to do with the sicknesses or the illnesses or the pain in the body. It's very much to do with your attachment to your body and identification with it. It's nothing to do with the fact you've got bad knees or a bad back or whatever. It's the sound of this back or this knees are something to do with me. It's amazing what you can do when this body vanishes and disappears. And if I am uh, in good health and don't get sick like many of you, it's not because of my amazing health diet. <laughs> it's nothing to do with that at all. It's the fact that I just don't bother too much about my body. I can just drop it, let it go. And you know that every time this body disappears, in deep meditation, you know, what you're doing for the last two weeks in my cave, and the body disappears, it's just marvellous. No aches, no pains, no body. You get heaps of energy, and when you come out afterwards, your body feels really good. And like two weeks of deep meditation, that sort of heals you for another you know, 12 months. So that's actually a secret of good health, is letting the body disappear, letting it vanish. It's not important to me anymore. And when it's not important, it's not that you know you don't have aches and pains. I have aches and pains and tummy aches and knee aches and bottom aches and aches all over and the headaches, but you just forget about it. It's not my body. Just the same way that all sorts of things might be happening on the screen of the TV, you're not interested anymore. So it just vanishes. And when you can do this, you can understand that this is not just letting the body go for good health. It's not letting the body go for you know, the happiness. It's letting the body go for the sake of insight and understanding. You can see this body is not myself. And one-fifth of you know, what Ananda was actually saying was you know, the cause of the I am idea has been dropped. And just that amount of wisdom, it's not streaming yet, but at least, oh, you're not afraid of sicknesses and death anymore. It means you're just, you know, you can bear with very easily all the sicknesses and aches and pains of this body. You can bear with it because it's not my problem. In the same way you can bear seeing other people in sickness and pain or writhing on the floor. Yeah, you've got compassion for them, you'd like to help them. But it's not that big a problem because it's not you feeling the pain. That's what you do when that pain is in your own body. It's not me feeling the pain, it's just pain, that's all. It's just aches, it's just this chronic sort of tiredness, whatever else you have. But it's not me. And when you can take away this identity, in the same way you look in the mirror, you stop looking in the mirror anymore. So you don't make that identification. It's not important. You take away the value. In the same way you take away the value from Vedana, from pleasure, from pain, happiness, whatever. You take away its value. It's not so important anymore. And when you 
take away its importance. Oh, it's just a bit of ache or a pain, disappointment. It's pleasant speech, unpleasant speech. You know, it's you know, smell smoke from the fire, or you can smell the fragrance of some uh, perfume made of uh, fish and chips or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but whatever it is, whatever is your favorite smells or unpleasant smells, it just smells that sort of nothing important. It's all this sort of the pleasure and pain business, which causes us so much busyness. Trying to be happy, trying to get rid of the aches and the pains and the disappointments and whatever else. All of that, you take a, you take the value away from that. It's not so important anymore. And the problem is, we think, well, if we take away our importance and just let pleasure and pain be, it's going to get worse. But it doesn't. It gets actually much better. When you seek for happiness, you try and make joy. You really try and control your life so you get maximum pleasure and minimum pain. You get more pain and more suffering. If you just let it be, okay, pain comes, pleasure comes, so what? Then you get happy. This is the, the two arrows simile. Take away the mental arrow trying to control things. Not the physical arrow, I'm saying take away the mental arrow now, trying to control things. There you get a lot of happiness, a lot of peace. So if you seek for happiness, you find suffering. If you accept things, then you just detach from them. You're not interested in pleasure and pain anymore. Then you find happiness. Joy at last. To know there's no happiness in the world, that favorite saying. So what do you do in meditation? If you go seeking for bliss and jhanas and nimittas, if you try seeking for the happiness, you only get frustration. If you're just sitting here, and this is good enough for me, this moment is all that exists. That was, I was telling someone in interview time, that was one of the, the great sort of contemplations I was doing for two weeks. Just the future doesn't exist. It wasn't just letting it go, it was just seeing just how much of a delusion it is, this idea of the future, how it is totally concocted, how it literally does not exist. And I remember what the Buddha said. He said, in the present moment, the past doesn't exist, the future doesn't exist. Later on, that which we thought was the future, that becomes the present, now it exists. But the future itself is just this terrible illusion we have. And it creates us so much problems. So just realizing that and taking its value away because it's just an illusion, a concoction, a fabrication, it's got no reality at all. That was brilliant. There's nothing to desire, nothing to want, nothing to be afraid of, nothing to achieve, nothing to get, because the future's not there. And all you had was just this wonderful, beautiful present moment. No desire, no wanting. And that was the happiness. You really notice that it's a wanting anything, the very fact of wanting, that is suffering, to want, to reach out to try and get something. The asawa, that is suffering. You know, even for good things, let alone for bad things, you're disturbing the peace by wanting something. If you just leave that alone, some people think, okay, when I want, when I get, when I want the, sorry, when I get what I want, then I give up wanting. All I want is just one limiter, then I'll be satisfied, I'll stop wanting then. All I want is one jhana, just one jhana, that's enough, and then I'll sort of let go, I'll be happy. But it doesn't work that way, it's the wanting leads to more wanting, leads to more wanting, leads to more wanting, because the wanting itself is a disturbance of the peace. It's what creates samsara and suffering. So what we need to do is just to stop wanting anything. To let things be. To do nothing. To actually just sit there with no idea of the future at all. Not even the next millisecond. All you have is right now. And that was one of the focuses I was doing on my retreat. It's brilliant. It really works so well. You just bliss out. 
If you want to get bliss, you never get it. If you're just here right now, not wanting anything in the whole world, literally not wanting anything because there's no place to want, the future's disappeared. Everything is so peaceful, so wonderful. Because what we really want is happiness in the future. We want to avoid pain. It's just realizing this pleasure and pain has nothing to do with me. It's taking away its, taking away its value, its importance. And then we bliss out when we're free from Vedana. And all these perceptions. You know, a lot of people have said they haven't got a jhana yet. They don't actually know what jhana is. Exactly, just perceptions people have of what jhana would be. Just like, you know, when people, they come to this, they write letters, they want to come to this monastery to learn jhana from Ajahn Brahm, to get limiters. And some of you come here with all these perceptions. And if you're not disappointed yet, you'll be disappointed by the end of this retreat. Because whatever you expect, you will not get. That's the meat, that's the core teaching of life. All these expectations we have, it never actually reaches. Whatever you expect it to be, it will always be something else. That's one of the words of the Buddha, which I always keep in mind. Whatever you expect it to be, it will be different than that. You can't perceive what a jhana is. You just don't know what you're talking about if you haven't been there. And you can't know what it is. That's an amazing thing to know. It's just impossible to even to to try and get a perception of it. So all these ideas which we have, a lot of times we perceive things of the future and the past, even trying to perceive a past jhana. We were talking uh, a couple of days ago just how memories change so quickly. Uh, now we had a, a bushfire over at the jhana grove and the word got around when I heard about it that one of the people saw a young man with a backpack. Now that was when I heard, but actually we... We investigated, I investigated it. It wasn't a young man, it was just you know, not old, not young. I mean, no backpack at all. But it's amazing just, just how perceptions, how they grow, and how they grow away, away from what originally happened. That's why you can't trust the past. All your perceptions of the past. I often have arguments, people say, Ajahn Brahm, you said this last week or last year, and the... In the, you said in one of the Sangha meetings, this is what we'll do. I don't know what I said. I, I, I sort of remember, but I don't trust my memory at all. Please don't you trust your memory either. Otherwise we have arguments. The past is the past, it's gone. The future is just absolutely sort of unpredictable. It doesn't exist. So that way, just all these perceptions of I want nimittas, I want jhanas in the future. You don't know what these nimittas will be. You don't know what the jhanas are. It's not that nimittas are always the same. I always mention that every breath is different. You know, when you watch your breathing, when you get to that stage of mindfulness is strong, you see the breath coming and going out, you can see just parts of the breath. You notice that every breath is none, none of the same. Even though you'd think there's no... There's only so many breaths, they must have lots of similarities. Absolutely not. In the same way, you can say very profoundly, no nimitta is ever the same. You can say even no jhana is the same. They've got certain qualities which are similar. Those are the salient features. So when you start to predict, want things to happen, you don't know what's happening. The quality which is the same is the quality of letting go, of things vanishing, of disappearing. Other things are different. The quality of the breath, you know, is air coming into the body, going out. There's something there which is similar. But so many other aspects of it are totally different. That's why it's hard to predict and hard to make. You can't make the breath for the breath which has just happened to repeat it. That's why when anybody does have a brilliant meditation experience, please don't try to repeat it. It's impossible to repeat it. If you do have another jhana, it will be different than the one you just had. So if you try and repeat it, you're repeating something which you can never attain. So this is one other reason just why 
We just let the future be. We don't even conceive of it. We don't will it. We don't look for pleasure or pain. We just be and let go and don't do anything. And all those perceptions, especially about the future and the past, go. They've got no value anymore. We take away the value that these things which we perceive, they're just perceptions at all. So a lot of those perceptions, they disappear, which is a great thing. The perception of who's your friend and who's your enemy, what you like, what you don't like, what's hot, what's cold, they can all vanish and go. So you're free of all those things. And of course, (laughs) the sankharas, especially, first of all, the... I know I always talk, talk about will, Chaitanya, as being the core sankara, but it's also thinking is a sankara. And who's got the best thoughts? I am right, you are wrong. My thoughts are much better than your thoughts. There's a joke going around that say that you know, when you have an argument with somebody, the best way to stop the argument will say, say to them who's arguing with you, well, if I agree with you, that makes two people who are wrong. which I thought was quite... I'm sure I'm going to use that when someone argues with me. (laughs) But all this thing about thinking who's right and who's wrong. I don't trust my thoughts at all. You know, you use your thoughts because, you know, you're managing, administrating a monastery or whatever, you're talking to people. But I take a lot of value away from my thoughts. Was that a good meditation or a bad meditation? Am I going to think about that? No, that's not important anymore. And all this description of the world through my thoughts, and all the way of trying to control this world through thoughts, I take away the value. I just remember growing up in Europe. So if any of the monks who, and nuns who came from Europe remember this. In uh, the witchcraft of the Middle Ages, they said that if you had somebody's name, you could have power over them. And it was uh, a core part of one of the fairy tales I read as a kid about, for those of you who remember Rumpelstiltskin, this uh, little uh, witch or wizard or something with a really weird name. He said, if you could know my name, then you are free of this spell. And the story was finding out this this witch's name. And this was part of the idea, which has some validity, to know the name of something would have power over it. I think that's also one of the reasons why in some religions you weren't allowed to say the name of the god, because it was almost a blasphemy to have power over that most powerful being once you had its name. And you can understand that that name, that designation, that thought, is we assume we can have power over things if we can think about it. That's why if you have a project to do, think about it first of all. Work it out, and then you've got power over it, you can control it. Before you meditate, think about what you're doing. Come on, think about what you're going to do. Work it all out, and then have a good meditation. Think about the Dhamma, just work it all out. You know, and then you can understand the Dhamma. Of course, you can't do it that way. And all those thoughts, the reason why we give them value is because we think that they are a very useful tool for controlling ourselves and the world. To understand it, to find our way through it so we can control it. But I don't know about you, my thoughts have let me down terribly. A lot of time, every time I thought I was doing the good thing, it turned out maybe it wasn't such a good thing after all. Every time I thought I was going to do something right and well, it didn't turn out well. I don't trust my thoughts. I was just uh, remembering a story, which is it's a, it's a challenging story for the senior monks and senior nuns as well, especially when we get into building projects. I <coughs> saw this in a comic book from Venerable Damika. It was a story of a, of a wonderful nun who lived in the cave, peaceful and happy, having lots of time to meditate, 
and lots of time to talk to people when they came and asked questions on Dhamma. And then one day when she returned from our arms round, we just every day just going into the village, getting a little bit of food, enough to eat, nice and simple, nothing to do. Then she noticed there was a hole in one of her robes in the cave. A mouse had eaten a hole in the robe. And this was not the first time the mouse had eaten a hole. So once again she had to find some rag and sew a patch on her robe. And as she was sewing the patch again, she started to get negative and thinking, that damn mouse, if I could not have a mouse in the cave, I wouldn't have to waste so much time. So she thought, what could I do? She thought, I will get a cat. And so the next time when she went into the village, she asked someone, can I have a cat to keep the mouse away so I don't need to keep patching my robes? And someone gave her a cat. But once she had a cat, then she needed to get more arms food. And also the cats liked milk. So she had to ask for some milk every time she went on arms round. And, you know, that was a bother, always carrying milk back on arms round. And so she thought one day, well, you know, if I had my own cow, I wouldn't need to keep asking for milk. So she asked one of her rich supporters. They made a collection. They had a nice book of sayings, and they sold that to get money to buy a cow. <laughs> and when they got the cow, she didn't need to ask for so much milk anymore. But then she's, no, she had to ask for, ask for grass for the cow, which was even more heavy to carry back from the village. And so she thought, oh dear, I need grass for the cow to get milk for the cat to keep the mouse away so my robes don't get bitten so I don't need to patch them. So it's a bother getting grass. So she thought, if I had my own field, then the cow could graze there. We need to ask for grass. So... Uh, she mentioned to some of her supporters overseas and they came along and brought a katina over and then they managed to find a nice pasture for the cow. So she was very happy. The cow had the grass. She could get the milk for the cat to keep the mouse away so she didn't have to patch her robes. But then it was such a lot of hard work just you know, looking after the field and you know just uh, doing the uh, burn-offs every now and again so you know there wasn't any... Uh, extra stuff and finding dead corpses on the on the field, just like we did last week. <laughs> Big bother. So she thought, if I can get like an attendant, you know, someone who can look after all that worldly business for me, then I could just have some peace. So she went to the village, and they suggested the young boy, you know, who was a bit naughty, and but you know, if they came to the monastery and sure the nun, or say came to the cave, the nun would sort of you know give him some good moral guidance. And, you know, to teach him some Dharma as well. So they sent this boy to the nun, and the boy would look after the cow, milk it, and you know, do all those sorts of jobs uh, so she'd get milk for the cat to keep the mice away so she could not have to patch her robes. But, you know, the boy can't stay in the cave with a nun, so she had to ask the villagers, you know, for some... Uh, some uh, Builders, you know, to build a, a small little hut, only a small hut, you know, for the boy. And so the villagers had to go and start doing all this building work. And, of course, before she could build the hut, she needed to get consultants. <laughs> of building permission. <laughs> and before she knew it, she was so busy again. Every time she did something new, it was to try and solve the problem from what happened before. And the problem was to get worse and worse and worse. <laughs> and when someone came to say, oh, excuse me, can you sort of uh, uh, give me some instructions on my meditation? That's when she said, oh, I'm too busy. Not now, a I'll, 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 couple of days' time. I'll, I'll get back to you because I've got to look after the builders. Who are building the hut for the boy to look after the cow, <laughs> to give the milk <laughs> for the cat, <laughs> to stop the mice eating my robes. And then she suddenly realised what she was up to. <laughs> she sent all the builders home, she dismantled the hut, gave all the wood away, 
gave the cow away and the field. He even gave the cat a nice new home somewhere else. And so the next, after about a week or two of giving all this stuff away, she was back in her cave. Simple nun again. A simple monk. They're not nuns, it's monks. A simple lay person. And she went out for alms one morning. Just got enough food. Didn't have to worry the lay people. They weren't sort of too scared when they saw her. And she came back, and when she came back with enough food for the day, she found the mouse had bitten, had come back and bitten a hole in her robe. But this time she patched the robe happily. <laughs> I love that story because you know, I'm as guilty as anybody doing all these things. Let's build another hut, let's build another this, another that. Be careful, you've got to do it at the beginning, at the nun's monastery, yeah, please do that. You've gone too far, but. Don't go too far. Remember what happened to that nun. It's a very good story, which I love remembering, keeping in mind, because otherwise we forget. And that's thinking. It's a proliferation which stops us being peaceful. So you do that and get it out of the way so you don't have to worry anymore. But the purpose of monastic life is not having a beautiful monastery. It's having a peaceful mind. Lots of people with peaceful minds. So by doing that, we take the value away from thinking. We even take the value away from will, because will is controlling. So it's just this will which comes up, what's left of it, is just, you know, just old stuff, just from kindness, from doing your duty. But you don't take this will so seriously. It's not my will. It's wonderful when you're meditating to actually to watch. If you've got enough mindfulness, enough peace, it's not so much will comes up. Remember Ajahn Chah told us similarly, I haven't told it for a long time, it's just when a leaf falls on the, in the forest, you, you just, the leaf falls amongst so many other leaves, so you can't really distinguish them, it doesn't stand out. It gets lost in the millions of other leaves and twigs on the forest floor. But when a leaf falls on a path which has just been swept, like all you people who sweep the paths in this monastery and Dhammasara, when one leaf falls in the middle of the path you've just swept perfectly clean, it really stands out. It's the same way when only one or two things pop up in your mind. When your mind is so peaceful and so still and so clear, and just one little intention pops up, it stands out. You can really understand it then. It's clear. When one intention or one in thought pops up amongst thousands, like a leaf falling in the forest floor, thick with leaves, you can't see it. You can't really get to understand it or contemplate it. So when a thought, one tiny thought, arises in a sea of stillness, or one intention arises in a very, very calm expanse of peace, you can understand it. You can see it. You know, know for what it what it is. And then you can see it's nothing to do with me. It's just, just old, what do you call it, an echo. Like the, those uh, places you can go, you shout out and you get an echo back. It's an echo from the past. That's all it is. But I'm not going to make any more intentions with this. I'm going to let it vanish and fade away. Because it's especially from intentions and next from consciousness where we make our, will, make our sense of self. I am because I will. I know Descartes said, I think therefore I am. But I think it's much more accurate to say, I will, therefore I am. Because if you take away the willing, if you take away all of this intention and the movement of the mind, that's when you really disappear. That's why this path of meditation which I've been teaching for years, you take away that will, you just let it fade, you don't give any importance, you don't give it value. Remember you can't stop the will by willing the will to stop. If you will the will to stop, that's more will, and then you've got to will the will which will the will to stop, to, and it, you know it gets impossible. You take away its importance and value. 
because then it's got no meaning for you anymore. It fades away, it vanishes, it stops. It's not important. And then it vanishes, and you vanish too. That's when the body goes, much of the mind vanishes. That's, that's how jhanas happen, when you stop wanting them. So your job is not to attain the jhanas. Your job is to take the value away from will. And eventually it gets so soft, you get so much time when it's not an intention arises, that when one does arise, you can understand it. It's nothing to do with me. I don't know how many times that you've experienced. A will comes up and says, I never started that, that didn't come from me. And you, clear enough, you know that this is nothing to do with you at all. You never initiated that will. To be able to see that becomes very clear. This will is just, it's just an echo, just a rumbling on of old stuff. To see that takes away its value, which means you can let the will go even more. The more you can see that this has nothing to do with you, the more you don't get involved with the will, identify with the will, like you identify with the movie. I don't know how many times as a young man when I used to see movies, you saw like some monster creeping out behind this beautiful young girl. And someone in the audience would shout out, Look behind you! <laughs> I'm sure you've seen that before. <laughs> what are they doing? It's controlling again. It just You might as well try and just control your own mind and control a movie. <laughs> you can't do it, okay? It's all going, the movie's going according to causes and conditions, the script. So you, when you're watching your <laughs> meditation, just to say, stop shouting out. Hey, watch out. You know, you're doing something. Hey, watch out. That's sloth and torpor. Hey, watch out. Stop craving. Hey, watch out. You're disturbing the nimitta. And then you disturb the nimitta. So your job is just let chedna vanish. Let will disappear. That takes a lot of selflessness to be able to do that. That's why it's a really good test of how much you understand non-self, of how deep you can get into meditation, how still you can be. It's not a question of effort. It's not a question of trying harder. It's a question of understanding. This will has nothing to do with me. It's not coming from me. It's no value. It's in fact, it is the cause of dukkha. You stop it. How do you stop it? Not through will, but through taking away its value. Will, personified as Mara, the head of Paranimata Vasavati realm, which controls the creations of others. Basically, it controls will. It's a very good metaphor, if it's not real. I know you, Mara. I know you, Will. You're the one who's come as a friend that keeps on murdering me, causing me so much suffering. I know you, Will. And Will slinks her head and shuffles off. The nun knows me. The monk understands me. Then it vanishes. But you vanish too. A half of you, who you think you are, gone. You make that self, just like a young person looks in a mirror and thinks, oh, that's me. When you observe will, too many people, the ignorant ones, the deluded ones, think that's me. Which is why you feel so, so wonderful that you've achieved a jhana. Why is that? Because you think you've done it. That you have somehow tweaked your will in such a wise way to get the jhanas. If you realize what's happened, it was because you vanished. You were the problem. So you should take no credit for any nimitas or jhanas at all. You should take no credit at all. 
you give all the credit to me. <laughs> and I pass the credit to Ajahn Chah. He passed the credit to Ajahn Man. It all goes back to the Buddha. And even the Buddha passes the back of credit back to his teacher, you know, the Buddha Kasapa. So it all goes back, 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 back. Endlessly back. And I say that because my conditioning gets you to stop. Just as Ajahn Chah's conditioning got me to stop. Nothing to do with me. It's for me vanishing. And for you vanishing as well. So you see this is non-self. You're understanding what this really means. It's only because when you look at will, you take it to be because of will, based on will, grasping at that will, you make this sense of, this is me. I will, therefore I am. And of course the last thing, I know, therefore I am. That's the last of those uh, five causes for the arising of the sense of I am. You know, taught by Punamatanaputta, probably pronounced that wrong, to Ananda, which made him be a, a stream winner. This is wrong. You know, that I know, therefore I am. Investigate that. What the hell do you know anyway? Don't think you know all of the Dhamma. You keep making mistakes like I keep making mistakes. That's not knowledge. That's just, you know, memory. The only thing you can know is what's happening right now. You can't know the future. You can't know the past. Even knowing this moment is difficult enough with all the hindrances getting in the way. Well, if you really sort of understand what this knowing is, remember that's part of the job of, of first of all, limiters. This is such a helpful insight to see when a limiter comes up, I'm just looking at this thing which is called knowing. It's a reflection. Just like you see the image in a mirror. In the part it's called mukha nimitta. A nimitta, this gives you an idea what a nimitta is. A nimitta is when you look in a mirror, what you see is not your face, it's the nimitta of your face. That's the meaning of nimitta. And so when you're experiencing this thing, this light, which we call nimittas, it's a reflection of something. It's a reflection of the jitta, the knowing. That's why sometimes people can look at that and say, ah, that is my mind. That's the real me. Basing that on I am. And this is a tough one to let go of. Because if you realize that even that has got no value, the nimitta has got no value, the most beautiful, incredible, blissful thing you've ever experienced up to now, it's not value, it's not important anymore. Then, you're free of it. Then it can disappear so you can enter a jhana. In the jhanas, part of you has vanished. A lot of you has vanished. That's why they are states of letting go. They're not a states which you attain. They're not a state which you can say you possess or you own because the I has mostly vanished even in the first jhana. It's one of the reasons I keep saying why Christian mystics, because you know, everything they knew about themselves has gone and they've got this incredibly powerful, blissful experience. You know, added one and one and made three and called that God. As Buddhists, we know better. We can see that everything's starting to disappear now. And we can see other things vanish as we go deeper. This thing we call knowing is going, vanishing. And it will only manage to do that if one can stop the identification. I think that's maybe one of the reasons why Devadatta could get into a jhana but just lost it afterwards. To identify that, yeah, that's a real me. I am that beautiful jhana. That's the real me, the underlying, the essence. Fortunately, that everyone here has got much better teachings. 
at least you know, they've uh, hopefully understood it by now, been brainwashing you long enough. You realize that these aren't you. You are disappearing here. And how do you disappear? By all that brainwashing, conditioning, you take the value away even from jhanas. These are just, as the Buddha said, just conditioned things. They are not the end. Take away the value. And then the jhana vanishes. Beautiful, beautiful jhana vanishes. And in its vanishing, you get something much more beautiful. The next jhana. Every one of these things happens when a huge part, it's a big things which disappear to get to the next stage. Until everything disappears. New odor, cessation. Everything disappears. And then you know that this identifying with this knower, making yourself, this is what I am. Within the jhanas, it's just, because you're not thinking, it's just so hard to make any I am in those sorts of states. You vanish mostly. And that's good enough to take away this identification. <coughs> so these are experiences. When you have some of these experiences, you understand, look, all this thing, what I thought I was, what I took myself to be, my identity, the underlying view who I thought I was, has been totally dismantled through this wonderful path of meditation. Just taking away value from these things. First of all, take the value away from faith because you've read it, you've heard it, tested it out by others who practice, it seems to work. You don't value your body anymore, you don't value Vedana, you don't value perceptions, you just don't trust them. You don't trust your thoughts, they're not important anymore. You, know, you don't sort of get stuck in these movies or whatever happens, it's just movies, that's all. You don't sort of value your intentions. They're just intentions, nothing to do with me. You don't value your consciousness. Take the value away. Take the identification of being a self. Then they vanish. And the vanishing is the meditation. That's what we do when we meditate, not to attain things. As Ajahn Chah always said, we meditate to let things go, not to attain. As he kept on saying in his early years, you come to become a monk or a nun to die. You don't come here to get things, but to die. Die to the world, die to your body, die to feelings, die to perceptions. To die to thoughts and will, to die to consciousness, to die to your delusion of self. And then to open up to Nibbana. That's what we do. So that's non-self. That's the, the core of being a street winner. Once you really get that in your head and realize, oh my God, this is how the Buddha taught, this is what's true. You realize that this path is just the only way to go. And all other sort of paths become totally ridiculous. You're letting go. You're vanishing. You're disappearing. It's only a matter of time before the whole thing unravels. The core which has kept you in samsara for so many lifetimes. The core. The illusion is something in here. Something worth saving. Something to live for. has been removed. It's just a matter of time. The old habits are terminally ill. You're on the way out. Congratulations. So that's the talk this evening.